0: Several years ago, it actually was back in the 70s, I had a good friend who was a senior vice president of a company, a national organization, and this was in St. Louis, and uh, he told me about a conference that he went to. He said this particular conference was with the then management guru, Peter Drucker. And he said that uh, in that conference, as Drucker began, he began something like this. Now there were CFOs there, CEOs there, COOs there, And there were also lots of uh, top management people. He said, why are you in business? And people were scratching their heads and a hand would go up and say, well, we're in business to make money. Uh, And then another would say, we're in business to, uh, to satisfy our board of directors. Or we're in business to make money for our investors. Or we're in business to provide a product. Or we're in business to provide employment. And then he stopped everyone. And he said one thing. He said, if you are in business for anything other than service, you should close your doors. Service. That's our subject of today. A spirit of servanthood and stewardship. Tim Keller, who's a pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And in that book, he shared this vignette. He said, The acclaimed foreign film, The Three Seasons, is a series of vignettes about life in post war Vietnam. One of the stories is about Hai, a cyclo driver, and a cyclo is a bicycle rickshaw, and Lon, a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfulfilled desires. Hai is in love with Lon. Lon lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes the money that she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. Then Hai enters a cyclo-race and wins the top prize. With the money, he brings Lon to the hotel. He pays for the night and pays her fee. Then to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and wealth to have her, he spends it to purchase for her one night in a normal world, to fulfill her desire to belong. Lon at first finds this deeply troubling, thinking that Han has done this to control her when it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible to return to her former life. Keller notes that in a similar way, Christians are transformed as we accept the Christ and how he served and died for us while we were unworthy of his love. Keller asks, Why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like this? Selfless love destroys mistrust in our hearts toward God. As we complete this series on the six marks of a disciple, and we're talking today again about a spirit of servanthood and stewardship, we're going to look at a passage from Matthew's Gospel. It's a passage in which the ultimate servant leader, Jesus, is discussing the idea of being a servant and a steward with his disciples. For our purposes here, when we talk about servant, I want to use this definition. We will mean someone who has put himself or herself and that person's gifts and resources at the disposal of God. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, If you would, uh, in your pew Bibles or the Bibles you brought with you or on the screen, and listen now for this interesting word of the Lord. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them, "said to them, speaking now to the two brothers. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? <laughs> we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called, and I believe all of them together now, and said, You know know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God add his blessing and understanding and application upon this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please join me now in prayer. God, we're grateful for moments like these, grateful for the chance to share together I'm grateful for the music of this morning, and I pray now, God, for these moments that we spend. May you speak to us through the power of your Spirit. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. Let's unpack this passage, and as we do that, I would like for us uh, to think about uh, having a spirit of servanthood and stewardship. Jesus, in this passage, Matthew 20, 20 20-28, makes three important assessments that have to do with servanthood and stewardship. Now, you must know that this all takes place as Jesus and his disciples are moving for the last time to Jerusalem. They're on the road, and they're with many travelers. He knows that he's going to be crucified there. Just before this particular passage that we've read, Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside from the crowd traveling with them and predicts his own death. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. And whenever he speaks about the Son of Man, he's talking about one of the Old Testament names given to the Messiah. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised again. Then, in almost an amusing way in some ways, the wife of Zebedee and her two sons, James and John, come to Jesus. She kneels before him and asks a favor. She is not pictured, by the way, in the, account, the other account in the Gospels, which is in Mark's Gospel. It's just the two brothers who come up at that point. Did you know that many scholars would say that she was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary? And so maybe she's saying, hey, we're family. Don't we get special preferences here? I mean, these guys are your cousins, Jesus. She wants one of her sons to sit on Jesus' right hand and another to sit on his left hand. In other words, she wants special appointments for them in his cabinet, appointments of power and prestige. Did you notice that Jesus is not impatient with her? I gotta tell you, I might have been impatient, thinking, I've heard this kind of thing before. It's at this point that Jesus gives them first an assessment of his own soon to come fate. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Then he turns to James and John. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? In essence, he's saying, can you suffer like I'm going to suffer? Now, and this isn't to put down teenagers. They're probably teenagers, really. And, and, he's, and, it's, and it's one of those things that they maybe can't fully comprehend because of their lack of experience, what he's talking about when he just made that prediction. So they quickly say, ah, we can. Jesus knows that his cup is going to be suffering. It's going to be being misunderstood and mocked, disrespected and made a joke, being viciously beaten with a violent, inhumane whip, and then laughed at and jeered as he hangs on a cruel, barbaric cross. He's been called the suffering servant, which will be the theme for our Lenten series this year. Isaiah 52 and 53, 800 years before this happens, visibly, visually, in a marvelous way, describes his crucifixion and what he's going to do. As the suffering servant, he puts himself completely at God's disposal, willing to be the sacrificial lamb who will take away the sins of the world. As he assesses his own fate, do you see what Jesus is asking James and John when he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They had no idea what he was talking about. Next, in verse 23, Jesus assesses the fate of James and John. He says to them, will you dr- indeed drink from my cup? You know, he says, you will indeed drink from my cup. He knows what's going to happen to them. But to sit at my right hand or left, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those who has prepared them by my father. In other words, guys, it's not my job to assign the places of honor and prestige. That's up to God, my father. And by the way, I got a feeling that between the lines here, he's saying, there are going to be some surprises. The places at the table may not be those whom you might predict the best seats may go to those whom you may be consider you might consider to be the most unlikely also once again i see jesus not being in, i see him being very patient and compassionate as he deals with their desire to be treated better than the others if you know the story of the new testament in fact james and john would drink of jesus cup as would the other disciples In Acts 12, 1 and 2, we read, it was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intended to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. He was the first of the 12 disciples who would die a violent death. And then John. John was the only disciple who was not martyred. He took care of Jesus' mother in the city of Ephesus, where she died. Then he suffered exile and persecution on the little island of Patmos off what we now know as the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. There he was banished to the mines before at his old age he was returned to Ephesus where he died. Both of these disciples tasted of Jesus' cup, becoming servants and stewards, putting their total selves and resources at the disposal of the Master. Listen to these words from Billy Graham as he wrote about this subject in an article in Christianity Today. He says, within the New Testament, there's no indication that Christians should expect to be healthy, wealthy, and successful in this present age. Christ never told his disciples that they would get Academy Awards for their performances, but he did tell them that they would have troubles. This age is interested in success not suffering. We can identify with James and John who wanted choice seats in the kingdom. We might even ask for reclining chairs and soft music. Finally, in verses 24 through 28, Jesus assesses the idea of greatness in the culture, their world of that day. At this point, of course, the other ten disciples are really hacked off. They are indignant that these two, with their mother nonetheless, would come and ask for favors of Jesus. So Jesus pulls them all together, and I got a feeling he's shaking his head with a smile on his face and saying, you realize that the Romans, those people that often we hate as Jews, oh, they set up for themselves as they get higher and uh, in, in up the ladder of success. They, they, they set up for themselves positions where they can lord over others same was true for the religious institution, the political leaders of Israel. The higher one got up, the more people to control, more servants to serve them. Maybe not too different in our world today, huh? As you think about it, you know, one of the reasons that people really like this, uh, the third season of Downton Abbey, which my daughter got me hooked on a couple of, well, back at Christmas time, is that we like looking at these people who have Opulent lifestyles. And this is back in, uh, in England, just after the First World War. And we, we're interested in the servants and how they act with each other. Maybe not too different. In our world today, the good life is measured by the number of people who serve us. As he does so often when proclaiming the kingdom, Jesus turns over the tables of the propriety of their day. Speaking to the disciples, he says, not so for you. Speaking of the culture of their day and the Romans and the way they do things. He says, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must become the slave. Slaves are a big part of their way of life in that day. A slave was one who was owned by another to do whatever that person asked. Jesus then says the Son of Man, the Old Testament name uh, for the Messiah, leads the way and serving, not asking his disciples to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Jesus was willing to serve and not be served. Jesus' servant spirit caused him to go to a cruel cross so that he could pay the price for the forgiveness of all of our sins. The ultimate in service is to give one's life for another. Certainly, in the military service, if a person offers his life for someone else, he may even get the Medal of Honor. If you're in the secret service, again, that word service there, probably the ultimate that you would hope for that if if, if something was going to happen to you is that maybe you would take a bullet for the president someday. Listen to these words or this thought by... CEO and founder of JetBlue Airlines, David Nileman. Now, he could have basked in the glory of the number one ranking in 2004 in the airline quality rating, but he was too busy doing what he called servant leadership. When he flew across the country in his airplanes, which he did regularly, he was just one of the crew members. Now, again, this is the CEO and the founder of JetBlue. He would pass out snacks and blankets with the flight attendants. He would sit in the cockpit and chat with the pilots. And then he would join the team that cleaned the planes afterwards. He would say, you can't ask your employees to do something that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. So it was with Jesus. He was willing to do what? what he was asking of them, the ultimate service, and what he's asking of us as Christ followers today. Do you get Jesus' point? In his kingdom, we must be those who are servants and stewards of all that God has given us. For Jesus' disciples and those early Christians, they kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And they won the privilege of sharing the good news with the world around them, good news of forgiveness and a new life in Christ by becoming servants who are willing to empty themselves for others. It's been proven that people come to church usually for the first time by being invited by either a family member or a friend. But probably coming the second time has a lot to do with the attitude of caring that they find when they go to that church. An attitude of caring that says, I'm willing to serve you, and that there's a place for you to serve here in our midst. As Scott mentioned last week, in recent polls across the United States, the fastest growing group of people are the nuns. (laughs) You're saying, oh, you mean people are joining, or women are joining a, a women's order in the Catholic Church? No, no, not talking about that. When people have been asked about their religious affiliation, now 30% of those in the United States say they have none. The way that they will best be reached, those 30% to be made disciples and released as disciples out into the world, is for them to see an authentic Christ through the attitude of a servant, caring for them unconditionally, not asking for anything in return. What about us here at ZPC? Are we more interested in being served than serving? Are we more interested in receiving than giving? Listen to these words from Kevin Miller. Kevin Miller is a pastor. He decided to go on Facebook with his friends before he was, as he was preparing a sermon. Maybe I should have done that for this one and said, what makes it hard for you to serve other people? Here are the responses that he got. First, serving is hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. Like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parent needs me to sort their meds, run an errand, or simply be with them. Another response, it's hard when their needs seem endless. I don't want to risk helping, serving, because I may get sucked in. Being swallowed up in the serving and not getting to be the me I think I am or should be. Another response, there is such limited energy left after a demanding workday, meeting our basic responsibilities, whether young children or the corporate world. How do you balance the need for rest and self-care with serving others? And he says, but his favorite of all is this. And again, why, what makes it hard to serve other people? And the response simply is, others. If you would, take out your bulletins. As you take out your bulletins, once again, you'll have the matrix in them. And as you can see, that matrix is completely filled out today. And uh, as you can see, uh, we really have before us, opportunities to grow in each of these areas but let me go a step further than just opportunities if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be then I got to tell you these are expectations for us as disciples where are you as you look specifically at the far right column there we think a spirit of servanthood and stewardship a journey of contentment I gotta tell you that's true when we give away our lives there's a sense of contentment. Where would you place yourself? I would challenge you today and in the, even this week to take these, this matrix and look at it seriously. And if you would like to have one like I have here, which is laminated, again, we'd be glad to do that so you can put maybe here you are and then you move and you can erase that and move to another spot in each of these areas. These are crucial if we're going to be followers of Christ. There are no shortcuts. This time I'd like to ask Phil Halstead to come forward if he would. Phil is a member here at the church and works with our young people and lots of other areas. And last week we were talking after the service and and I really wanted him to come forward and and just share a little bit. Now, where have you used this matrix for the six marks of disciples?
1: Well, um, I lead a small group with Josh Migget, um and we meet every week. It's a group of uh, young men, high schoolers, they have to be sophomores right now. And um, we've been going through our goals, and physical goals, and school, and work goals, um, but also spiritual goals. And so as we've gone through this series, I've been basically taking each of these columns, and we as a group just said, let's be honest, and let's just, where are we? Where are each of us?
0: So how have you used this then?
1: Basically, it's, it's given an opportunity for us to go into that small group and say, okay, where are you on that column? So like the first column, I brought it up and shared to project it. Um, we've had a chance as a small group to kind of just put out where are you and then also have a discussion on that. Um, this is a little bit of a candy chart. You can't see the words, but you, you see these black marks. And what those are is, The top one is where the one person is, is at least one person is the lowest level, quote unquote, of the spiritual maturity. And uh, the bottom is where in the group, and my score is in that group. Um, And then the circle is kind of where we kind of bunch together. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so like the first column, we spent a week talking about that. And pretty much, I mean, a group of young men are in that element of still trying to accept Christ for the first time, Mm -hmm. but then, What I found is, over time, you know, you see what the scores are, that basically it uh, it changed. We had a discussion on that. And more importantly, as for 2013, what are we going to do to move where we are to advance it again? Because we don't want to be still. We don't want to stay there. We want to keep growing.
0: Is there anything else you've learned from this that you want to share?
1: Well, I think one thing that we talked about as a group of young men is, first of all, if you look at that, from our group, again, this is our group, um, if you don't have a heart for Christ alone, then everything just becomes do's and don'ts. And we've been talking to the high schoolers recently about, it's not about not doing drugs and not doing, um, and obeying your parents, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's about having that relationship. So we've got great head knowledge in our group in terms of guys are praying and guys are, they know the basic tenets of the Bible, and. And they pray, and, and, but the element is they only have that relationship. So we got to go from our, our head knowledge yeah. to our heart knowledge yeah. and have that relationship. And then once we have that, then that Holy Spirit will energize us going forward. Yeah. So I think those were the big learnings. And then the other two, we had a Super Bowl weekend last week, so we didn't meet. So we're going to talk about those other two this next week and, and put together our goals of what, how we can each support each other then this year it to keep nasty. growing in that. If you're in a small group,
0: I would challenge you to use this. If you are, uh, and, and really kind of do an evaluation, you know, take stock of where you are. And as an individual, I would challenge you to look at this seriously. Maybe as a couple or as a family, look at this seriously. Thank you so much for right. coming and sharing. Thank you. Appreciate it. I want to close with an illustration. I think I'm going to use this for the children's sermon at the next hour. Um, when I'm in Florida visiting my daughter, one of the things I do is I... It's a chance to get exercise, a little warmer down there, so I, I walk. I walk two and, a half, two and a half miles to a particular place, and then I walk two and a half miles back. Now, i got to say, if, if I fess up, that place is Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, they've got muffins there. They've got muffins and, and bagels. But, uh, but, so, uh, but one of the things that I noticed is I went by this school, I, every day in elementary school and, and my daughter Becky said I don't think I want Delaney to go there you know how it is when you first have a child they got to have the best of everything I don't think I want her to go there the buildings don't look too nice and yet as I went by there I thought wow what I love for Delaney to go here And it was because of one person that person wasn't the principal that person wasn't wasn't any of the teachers The person wouldn't even be the custodians. That person was one guard out, you know, uh, crossing guard out on the street. I couldn't believe it. She was like the Energizer Bunny out there. She was waving to everyone who came in, smiling at them. And also, when she would back children up to wait for all the cars going by, she would talk with each one of them as if she knew them by name. What a servant. So the last day, as I was walking by her, and she'd stopped me, of course, and I was standing there, and I said, wow, you really do a good job. And she sputtered. She sputtered, and she said, ha, I wish those police would come and help us learn how to do this. I thought, learn how to do it. You could teach them, who are public servants, all that we might have that kind of atmosphere. It only takes one person to light up a place. What if God would use you, like that crossing guard, to make a difference here? I can think at Southport, there was this guy about 6'5", he was a Purdue grad, I wouldn't hold that against him, but, but he also uh, was probably weighed about 250, 260 pound, a giant of a guy, and he felt God was calling him to go out and just greet people when they came in on Sunday morning. New member after new member after new member when they were asked, why did you join this church? They'd say, what's that big guy out there who's been greeting us from the very first day? Oh, dear friends, we need to be servants willing to empty ourselves to do even the most menial of tasks so that Jesus Christ is glorified. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, thank you so much for this chance to look at your word together. Thank you so much for this church family. I give thanks for each one of them as I look out across them and and see them and grateful for them and for the difference they're making not only in this church but in our world out there uh, each day. And I pray now that you would bring wisdom and you would bring guidance and strength as they go into the future. And I would also pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these six marks seriously. Oh, it's a part of our DNA. We've got them out in the gathering space where you can see them, but it's easy to walk right by them and forget that these truly are the expectations that you have for us as those who follow the one who was the ultimate servant. Oh, God, give us a spirit of servanthood and stewardship. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.